Hello, hello, everybody, wherever you are in the world watching. This is NNOA, a weekly look at news, views, and historical perspective of the world's greatest organization, the National Naval Officers Association, with chapters throughout the United States and Okinawa, Japan. I am Commander Denise McCallar Creary, the immediate past president of the National Naval Officers Association. And it is my honor and privilege on this 23rd day of January to be sitting in this seat, the host of This is NNOA, normally Captain Roosevelt Rick Wright Jr. is normally here, but today I have the privilege to have him on the other side of the camera being interviewed. Our president, Admiral Sinclair Harris, has declared this the year of the captains and colonels. And for those who don't know, it's captains in the Navy and the Coast Guard and colonels in the Marine Corps. And we're celebrating them this year. And of course, our host is one of those Navy captains. And I get the privilege to have him in the, on the other side of the camera. Now, he's smiling big time. He is very special to us. He serves on the board, our board, as the historian. And let me tell you, history he knows. His mind is shot. I cannot keep up with him. He's also a professor emeritus of the Syracuse University Newhouse School of Journalism. He's also the former talk show host on Power 6, 20 FM of Old School Sunday. And I used to take great pleasure in listening to him because he would play those nice old school music of our ear that I love. And today we're going to hear about him. He has spent the last few months since we started the show talking about others, interviewing others. But today is his day and he's been around a long time. So we're going to have a hard time fitting his story in a short time, but we're gonna try, aren't we, Captain Wright? Oh, we're gonna Hello. have a ball today. I'm so happy to be here with you. Oh, Commander Denise McCullough Curry, the immediate past president of the National Naval Officer Association. It is indeed a pleasure to be your guest on this week's edition of This Is NNOA. Oh, How does it feel to be my guest? Oh, I feel- You're not doing the work, the interview. I feel fantastic being the interviewee. I've always I've been looking forward for this all of my life to be interviewed by you, Commander Denise McCullough Curry. Oh, I never forget the first time when I saw you at NNOA convention back in the 1980s. And when I saw you and all of those other great brothers and sisters of the United States Navy, United States Coast Guard, United States Marine Corps, I was in heaven. And I'm Well, listen, wait, wait. We want it to be about you today. So let's start talking about you. You're not going to get away with talking about lots of other people. We want to hear about you. We want to hear your history, your story. So let's start with you telling about us where you were born and where you grew up. Well, uh, to all of our great uh, NNOA family members, everybody checking out the show today. In fact, you might know this part of the world. I was born in a wonderful city in Northeastern North Carolina called Elizabeth City, North Carolina home of the United States Coast Guard Air Station, and the Navy had a big air station, Naval Air Facility Wixel. 
Uh, of course, when I grew up, uh, Denise, our country was faced with the era of segregation and racism and all. But of course, uh, my family was a very good and very interesting family. Uh, in fact, Reuben Wright III, who's the executive producer of this uh, big time show, his grandfather was an electrician who was an electrician for the US Navy during World War II. And uh, his grandmother, Mrs. Lily May Wright, mom was one of those African-American uh, ladies of that era who were basically domestics working in the kitchens of uh, you know the rich white folk in mm -hmm. uh, early, early days of Elizabeth City, North Carolina. But in my case, I had a sister, Barbara Ann Wright. Barbara died about 20 years ago. She was two years younger than I. But basically, the city of Elizabeth City, North Carolina was a military city. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm trying to set the perspectives because all of the African-American sailors and Coast Guardsmen who were stationed at the Elizabeth City Coast Guard Air Station and the Naval Air Facility Weeksville, and also we're only 35 miles south of Norfolk, Virginia, which is the home of the Atlantic Fleet. So to give a slant to what was going on at that time, just about all of the African-American sailors were basically mess cooks and messmen in the United States Navy and the United States Coast Guard. And of course, being in an era of racial segregation that is in the South, and I'm in Northeastern North Carolina, Elizabeth City, when all the brothers left the base, you know, things in the city were basically closed to them. I mean, the movie theaters, the downtown restaurants. And so basically the African-American section of the city basically prevented, that is provided an air of solace at home, cooked food, you know, like the stuff you got in Jamaica, that kind of stuff. I know, well, you know, it's interesting that you mention about um, the segregation, because as you know, you're, you're about to say it, I'm originally from Jamaica. And when I arrived here, I knew nothing, I didn't even know the word racism. Moreover, the fact that you could have a place where a, a group of people lived and pretty much was ostracized from going to another area. And I remember even some of my friends after we came, they visited the South. And one of my very best friend happens to be half Chinese and he was dating a woman of color. And he came back and told us how he was allowed to go in the front door and she had to go in the back door of the hotel where her mother worked. Of course, I knew I was never gonna to go to the South because that was just unacceptable. But go on with your story. Tell us about your, your mom and your grandmom. So uh, getting you know, this whole thing in perspective, especially for the National Naval Officers Association. Now out of this group of African-American sailors though, became really my mentors and great teachers. These brothers were absolutely fantastic. And I'll give you some of their names. Petty Officer Lewis Chester Charles was a mess cook with the United States Navy. And mm -hmm. then of course, another great sailor named Danny Reginald Echoes, who was in the United States Navy. And he basically became, was really the first African-American enlisted sailor who had another rate. And this fine, I'll get into that particular era. He became our Boy Scout Troop leader at Boy Scout Troop 115 in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. But to give you a perspective, uh, our homestead was at 703 South Road Street in Elizabeth City. And of course, that section of the town was really a very active area of African-American history and heritage. There were nightclubs there. Uh, eventually, my father, of course, also worked for the Virginia Carolina Amusement Company, which owned all the movie theaters in northeastern North Carolina and a number of the movie theaters around Norfolk, Virginia, Chesapeake, and the southeastern Virginia. 
and dad became an electrician for the Virginia Carolina Amusement Company and a 35 millimeter motion picture projectionist right after World War II when mm -hmm. he had left his role as an electrician at the Norfolk Naval Shipyard. So eventually what had happened, you know, by the way, in movie theaters, all of the African-American uh, patrons of movie theaters had to sit in the balconies. There was wow. a colored entrance, yes, on the side of the uh, theater where basically all of our people had to go and sit up in the balcony near the projection booth to see movies. But in my hometown of Elizabeth City, North Carolina, the Virginia Carolina Amusement Company, which is headed up by Mr. J. Holland Webster and uh, Mr. Levin Culpepper, who's a very wealthy uh, family in Elizabeth City, they set up a theater, all, an all African-American movie theater. It was called the Gaiety Theater. Mm -hmm. and it was in that movie theater that my father was a motion picture projectionist and eventually became the general manager of the theater. Well, in that area of my hometown, there were also nightclubs like the Royal Peacock, the mm -hmm. Blue Room, Oh, that was Mr. Dan. Listen, listen, let's talk, let's tell me more about your mom. You mentioned your dad. What about your mom? Oh, yes. Now, my mother, uh, beautiful. In fact, uh, oh my God, Ruben was taking some pictures. I should have brought the picture of mom out so you could see what she looked like. But mom was absolutely gorgeous. She and dad met each other uh, right after high school. And of course, the high school that uh, my mother and father finished was the same high school that I finished and my sister Barbara, P.W. Moore High School in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. So that, my mother was, she was a beautiful lady. She like you. Uh, well, listen, we know she's beautiful because we do have a picture of her mom. Oh, you do? Yeah, yeah. yeah we do. Oh, yeah. But wow. keep telling your story though. Let me just keep talking here. You have a picture okay. of your mom. Okay, so mom was really a beauty and dad and they met. So dad, when he finished P.W. Moore High School in Elizabeth City, you know, opportunities for African-American uh, males was very minimal. And World War II hasn't broken out yet. I'm talking the end of the 1930s. Mm -hmm. Dad loved the area of audiovisual communications and electronics. So he goes to Philadelphia, where we had a lot of, you know, a lot of African-Americans migrated to the North. So we had a number of relatives who lived in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So dad goes to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And while there, he was working at a hospital a private hospital out in West Philly, out in, um, it was called the Burn Bray Hospital. Dad took me there a number of years later. But at the hospital, which was one of those private hospitals of that era, the daughter of the owner of the hospital was a professor at Temple University, all right, in Philadelphia. Okay. So she really liked my father for some reason or another. And um, she got him into the night school electricians program at Temple University. So dad finishes the program at Temple University and just before World War II, he comes back to Elizabeth City really to get my mother and they wanna get married and he wanted her to come north to Philadelphia. My mother said, no, she's not leaving the South. And of course she was probably about what, 18 years old, didn't wanna leave her family. So basically she stayed there in Elizabeth City. Now, while dad was there, my grandmother, uh, who was Reuben's great-grandmother, was Mrs. Annie Wright Collins. She worked for a very wealthy attorney named Lawyer Leroy in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. Lawyer Leroy had heard that my father had gone north to Temple University and had started to become an electrician. Mm -hmm. And he said, Annie, uh, and my, my father's nickname was Buster. He said, Buster and Lily May, you're, 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 they're really getting that. He said, look, I want to try something. And what Lawyer Leroy had planned, he wanted, he wanted to get my father an electrical contractor's license. 
So basically the lawyer got all the paperwork, filled it all out. But what was not known that my father was an African-American. This is the state of North Carolina. So dad took the, he showed up and they were absolutely shocked that he was an African-American to take the electrical contractor's exam. But lawyer Leroy had already fixed up that he had to take the exam. So dad took the exam and then a few days or weeks later, he gets a response back that said he had failed the exam. A few days later, lawyer Leroy went to my grandmother, Mrs. Annie Collins Wright, and said, Annie, uh, your son Buster, he passed the test. The problem is, is that the state of North Carolina is not giving licenses to young, uh, in fact, those days, colored boys, as they would use that word, uh, in the state of North Carolina. So dad basically was there. And what happened? World War II breaks out. And here's the horror story of this. My father and also mom, they were just incredible, a couple and everything. Dad was an incredible electrician. The war breaks out and that's when they expand the United States Coast Guard Air Station at Elizabeth City into a major air station. And the Navy builds a big Naval Air Station called Naval Air Station Weeksville. The squadrons were blimp squadrons, ZP-1, ZP-4, ZP-14. And all these blimps are used to go for anti-submarine warfare patrols off the coast of Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Maryland, and all. And in fact, so you, you, know, have, you, you have a very long history then in association with military base oh, yes. where you were born. So I assume you went to high school there in Elizabeth City? Or yes. Did you and, uh, well, the whole thing, Dan and mom got married. Yeah. And then I come along. Right. And Dad basically gets a job in the Norfolk Naval Shipyard as an electrician. The sad thing, though, is that if Dad had had his electrical contractor's license, Dad could have gotten many of the many million-dollar awards that were being awarded to contractors to build the Naval Air Station at the Weeksville, Elizabeth City, North Carolina, and also the expansion of the Coast Guard Air Station, Elizabeth City. But in the end, Dad goes electrician for the Navy. And my mother, of course, as a, she finished high school and mother was really smart, but she also was kind of shy. And I think for her family background also, and they have big other stories about that. She basically found herself and many African-American females were basically domestics. They were, you know, worked in family, you know, the big rich white folks' family, you know, mm -hmm. the whole story of doing the cooking and the cleaning and raising their children. And that was my mother's whole background. Right, and so then, you, she had you, you yeah. were the first child? I was the first child. The yes. first child, and you mentioned a sister, so you have a sister. I have a sister, Barbara. She and and you went to school in Elizabeth University? In Elizabeth or? City, North Carolina. You graduated from high school there? Yes. Well, you, uh, you know, Commander, uh, yeah. my father always told me something, though. And I, in fact, uh, he, told, he always told me when I was a little kid, he said, don't you ever forget this, but you were born on board the USS Shangri-La the big aircraft carrier, Essex-class aircraft carrier that was being built during the World War II really? at the shipyard. So that Dad always said I was born on the USS Shangri-La. And as I get older in life, I keep wondering, did Dan and Mom, you know, Mike, oop, yes. you know, on board yes. the Shangri-La where the ship was being built in Norfolk? <laughs> well, that's the story he always told me. Well, anyhow, to get with the story real quick in my case, okay, I'm born in 1943. I'm an old guy, by the way. And of course, um, grew up in Elizabeth City. Elizabeth City, North Carolina, of course, had a Navy, had a shipyard where they repaired Navy ships. Dad worked in Norfolk. Then I grew up in the 
theater business along with dad. My love and really following dad, I love electronics, aviation, you know, airplanes, photography. And I became pretty much the audiovisual geek. So I still remember to this day when I went to the first grade at P.W. Moore Elementary School in Elizabeth City, and my first grade teacher was Mrs. S.E. Moten, and she was a strict disciplinarian. But so also, would you say that's where your interest in radio and yes, television yes. began at that well, early really age? From, from my father and my mother. Both were really just, my, my mother was very adventurous also. By the way, my mother's side of the family were the partiers. For her family, they had the big parties. They loved music. They loved dancing. Loved I had uncles who had nightclubs, you know. Oh, wow. Uh, so clearly you didn't go to the nightclubs. You graduated high school, and did you go on to college in that area? Yes. Did you go in, fact, I'm gonna run, in fact, I'm at P.W. Moore High School, which is my uh, high school. One of my great mentors was Mr. C.R. Page. Also, the paralyzation of this is still the Navy, because all of the young African-American sailors that uh, were stationed at the U.S. Coast Guard Air Station, Elizabeth City, and Naval Air Facility, Wicksville, would come into the African-American neighborhoods. And my mother cooked food like she was cooking for the entire U.S. Navy. I, I hear you tell that story a lot. That was really great. Yeah, sure. you, you got to meet a variety of people, I'm sure, and hear some yes. stories like we do. So, you, so know, you, 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 you left high school and you went to college where? And I, did you major in journalism? And no, in fact, um, when I was at P.W. Moore High School in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, I was the audiovisual gig. And also, Dad taught me how to handle 35-millimeter motion picture projection equipment. And Dad became the general manager of the theater, the Gaiety Theater. I was a projectionist. This is during high school. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, at high school, my principal, Mr. C.R. Page, was really, I mean, he just was a great mentor to me. Another great teacher, Mrs. Helen Saunders, always used to beat up on me about, say, Roosevelt, you should be in speech and radio, and I'm going to work on you on that particular area. And I realized that she was planting seeds for me. Well, okay. anyhow, I, at the time I'm graduating from high school, which was P.W. Moore High School in Elizabeth City, I had, uh, you know, I graduated. In fact, in my high school yearbook, I don't know, the students elected me most likely to succeed. And they were right, because and you succeeded. I, I, you yes. went on and you graduated high school. And okay. And now here's where did a you go to university? Yes. Now, here's the graduation from high school bit. There's a thing called high school senior day, uh -huh. you know, where, high, where colleges basically have their high school senior days to try to, to recruit you know, students to come to their school. In my hometown of Elizabeth City, there is a great HBCU university that is still in existence today, was created in the late 1800s, the Elizabeth City State University. And Elizabeth, the Elizabeth City State University, at the time I was graduated from high school in 1960, a brand new president had surfaced at Elizabeth City State University, roughly 1958. His name was Dr. Walter Nathaniel Ridley. And Dr. Ridley was the first African-American to get a doctoral degree from a Southern university where things were still segregated wow. in 1953. And he had been a major professor at Virginia State University at Petersburg. He had gone to undergrad school at Howard University and got his master's degree and all. But guess what his field was and one of his areas of interest? Audiovisual education. 
So I'm at the high school senior day at, you know, that day, all the students, we took the bus from P.W. Moore High School to Elizabeth City State. And I'm telling you, when I'm going on board at HBCU campus, for me, it was like, I thought it could have been Harvard or Yale. Is that but, right? Why, is that, why did you feel that way? It was just, you know, to get on that college campus to see all of the older African-American brothers and sisters who were in school. They were dressed to the nines. I mean, they all had ties and suits on, you know, carrying the books around the library, all the different buildings and all. And then the whole, all of us as high school seniors, we met in the uh, S.D. Williams Gymnasium, which was the auditorium. And that was also serving as a gymnasium, you know, for basketball and everything and physical education. But we were there and this day, uh, Dr. Ridley gets up and he was absolutely inspirational talking about uh, the development of Elizabeth City State University. And this is what he said. He said, oh yes, and by the way, we, this university has just purchased all of the motion picture projection equipment from a theater in Newport News, Virginia that had closed down. And his family, by the way, owned a bank called the Crown Savings Bank in Newport News, Virginia, the Norfolk area. And he said, what? Oh, my God, I was like in thrill. You were in heaven because you saw opportunity, right? Opportunity. So really what happened, uh, 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 Commander, that day after, you know, we had tours of the campus and all, I kept saying, I said, my God, I, I have got to meet the president, you know, this Dr. Ridley. So when all, of course, you know, the, the college being in my hometown, we came over on the bus. So I told my, um, I told my, my, my teacher uh, at that time, uh, Mrs. Um, Helen Saunders, I said, Mrs. Saunders, uh, I, I'll get back home. I want to walk around the campus, see if I can meet Dr. Ridley, the president. I said, yes, Roosevelt, very good. You can take care of yourself. You need just give me a call. So they got on the bus, went back to the school. And then I walked, I was walking around the campus and I went to the student union building and you know, the, these students were like, you know, two or three, four years older than I. Oh, they were having a ball study. I was in heaven. So then I said, boy, I would love to meet the president of the university. I walk out of the uh, student union building, which is called the Pirate's Den at Elizabeth City State University that day. And I'm walking in the quad area of the campus and guess who's walking down the walkway? Dr. Dr. Ridley. Walter N. Ridley, the president. And of you the took university. this opportunity to make your move. Yes. To make so, sure I, he... so, you know, I, now, by the way, I'll tell you one thing about me. I've always been very shy too. I was, you know, shy and all. You would never be able to tell. Well, I, I kind of hid it but well. Yeah, I met you. <laughs> but I walked up to Dr. Ridley, a, a commander of Denise McCullough Crary, and I said, Dr. Ridley, uh, my name is Roosevelt Wright Jr. He said, what should I, you say, you're Roosevelt Wright Jr.? I said, yes, I really enjoyed your, your speech this morning about opportunities here at Elizabeth City State. And I heard that you had said you had just purchased all of the 35 millimeter motion picture projection theater from a theater in Newport News. For, he said, yes, my uh, family has a bank there and um, the theater closed down and I had set up the audio visual program, he told me at Virginia State University back in the 1940s. And I said, my God, I um, my father manages the Gaiety Theater. He said, is your name Roosevelt? I said, my God, I know you, I heard of your father, boy, this is nice meeting you. And he said, do you know? I said, yes, I'm a 35 millimeter projectionist and audio visual and all. He said, young man, come with me. So I go to his office at Moore Hall and this is the uh, spring of 1960. Uh, Denise and to the NNOA family. And I walk in his office and he walks up to the secretary who named Mrs. Alma Newby, who was a president secretary at Elizabeth City State, and said, Mrs. Newby, give me the keys to the storage room we got up on the second floor. 
of Moore Hall, the, the administration building. And they were at that time renovating the administration building and they were renovating the auditorium. And also guess what they were doing? They were trying to, they were really redesigning a projection booth for the, uh, for, for the, for the college and for the new equipment that had just gotten. So that's you gave really them nice. your expertise and yeah, so we went up to the, after that and Okay, we went up to the room where all the stuff was stored and I started going through everything. And he always called, he always said, young man. He said, young man, I have got to, you, you uh, come, come with me. So we went over where they were in the balcony of Moorhall Auditorium. And the uh, architects, the guys who were doing it, didn't know how, what a projection booth should look like. And so this, um, they were white contractors. They looked and said, you know how to, I said, I could draw up the, some drops, drops of rough plans for how it should look. And Dr. Reedy said, can you? I said, yes. I said, well, you do that. And so I went and drew up the plans for the, how the projection, uh, motion pitch projection room should be built and designed at Moore Hall Auditorium. Elizabeth so how, how many do you, I assume you stayed and graduated with your major in yes. audiovisual? So, so I graduated from yeah. P.W. Moore High School. And uh, we get the, this was like April, May of 19th. They installed, the, I helped install all the projection equipment. And where did you go from there? Where did you go and from not, there? Okay, I had two scholarships there at the time okay. when uh, Mr. Page, the principal, had all of the seniors, and he announced, he said, that Roosevelt Wright Jr. has been awarded two scholarships. He has a scholarship to Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia, and Elizabeth City State University has also offered him a four-year complete scholarship. And I said, I'm going to go home to Elizabeth City State University. I was so in the to, You went to Elizabeth State University and yes. you spent four years and four you years. graduated with a degree in? Industrial Arts Technology. Industrial and then where did you go from there? Okay, now what happens uh, also, I was in the first class of Industrial Arts Technology majors at Elizabeth City State, class of 1964. Dr. Ridley, the first thing that he did was expand the curricular opportunities at Elizabeth City State University. You know, majors in business and biology, mathematics, physical education, history, political science, and all industrial arts. And that increased the student enrollment also. All right, now, so, okay. Graduate. You know, I'm at Elizabeth City State University. Graduation comes, I finish up in 1964. But there is a Navy story in this. Okay, let's I, hear your Navy story. Is this the start of the adventure in the Navy or just? Well, I, you know, I love the Navy and the Coast Guard. You know, all of the, okay. the, the Navy sailors like uh, Petty Officer Danny Reginald Echoes. He was our scoutmaster. He had come to Elizabeth City to the Naval Air Facility, Weeksville. He was in Helicopter Squadron 3, HS3. And he was that new breed of African-American brothers that you know, basically were no, no, were messmen and cooks. I mean, the Navy was finally opening up their ranks, and these brothers are going to these technical A schools. Another brother, I just started. I got to call his name out because a lot of the NNOA family, and you, of course, you know him also, Lieutenant Commander Milt Moore, Milton Moore. Milt was a Coast Guard rep for the Coast Guard back in the 1980s before he died, mm -hmm. but Milt Moore was a radarman, enlisted type. And he was the only air traffic, uh, African-American air traffic controller, I think in the whole US Coast Guard at that time. And these brothers used to bring me out to the base and take me and show me what they were doing. I remember going up in the air traffic control tower at Elizabeth City so, Coast so did Guard. did you join the Coast Guard? 
No, so, so, so at this time, this is my, my my junior and senior year in college when all this was happening, you know, going out okay. to, to the base with all the brother sailors. And I was just crazy about the Navy or the Coast Guard. Now, so in senior year, one day, I'm in the Industrial Arts Technology Laboratory. I think my course at mechanical drawing was going on. And Dr. John, May, uh, John, John R. Maben is his name. He was the uh, professor who was in charge of career development. Uh, you know, good stuff that Captain Mary McAdams always talking about career uh -huh, development, uh -huh, uh -huh. a counselor, and he taught right. courses also in political science. But he was like the, um, you know, you would say a vice chancellor today. He came over to the industrial arts lab that day. <clears throat> Let me clear my throat. And Dr. Maven said, uh, there is a naval officer here from Norfolk in my office. And he said that he had been ordered to come down to see, you know, if he could find some, you know, African-American naval officers. This was 1964 now. Wow. So Dr. Maven came over and said, you, you, all of you are industrial arts majors, you know, you guys have taken all the technical, the first thing we talk about today, STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics kind of courses. Right. And he said, could you, somebody, please guys, could you come over and just at least meet this naval officer and, uh, you know, be a good representative of Elizabeth City State? So I said, yeah. So I never got a couple, three or four of the guys are no longer with us. They were, in fact, Reuben Bugs. In fact, Captain Anthony Swain, uh, Navy in, in uh, the DC chapter of Elizabeth City State University alumni, I was on one of their meetings a number of months ago. I heard that Reuben had died. And he, we were very close. And then for Ed Bracey and some of my other colleagues who were industrial arts major. Okay, we go over okay. to Dr. Maven's office. We walk in his office, Commander Denise McCauley Curry. There is this naval officer. Of course, he was a white officer, mm -hmm. commander with his uh, dress blues on. He was sitting down. And, you know, having grown up in the world of, you know, <laughs> as an African-American young kid trying to make it in the South. I've seen that picture over and over. He was sitting like he looked like he did not want to be there at all. And he looked at us, we walked in and he said that, um, I've been ordered by the Navy to come to your school to see if we could find some, some boys like you all who might could qualify to become Naval officers. And uh, Bugs and all the other guys kind of looked at each other and on our way over, they were saying stuff like, man, the Navy, no. Man, there's no opportunity in the Navy. They only got brothers just doing service and messmen and cooks and stuff in the Navy. I said, no, but things probably going to change, man. So, this, so we went over. And this is what, you know, this uh, Naval officer said to us. We walked in. He said, I've been ordered by the Navy to see if we can find some boys like you all who might get qualified to become Naval officers. And first of all, you guys got two strikes against you already. That's what he told us like that. And he said, if you... Might want to try, you can come up to North and take the test and all. And then he got up and walked out. And your reaction was? My reaction was, man, the Navy. I always want, you know, I love the Navy and the Coast uh -huh. Guard. Mm -hmm. And so I said, uh, my aunt, uh, my father's sister, uh, my aunt Edna, Virginia Wright Few, was a army captain in World War II. She was one of the first African-American females in the Army Nurse Corps. 
in the beginning of World War II. She had finished, by the way, Elizabeth City State University. By the way, one of her classmates was Alex Haley, who wrote mm -hmm. the book Roots. Hey, and his father is a faculty member at uh, Elizabeth City State. What well, my aunt was proud of her World War II military. And of course, I think she was a major when she got out of the army. Mm -hmm. And of course, she finished the St. Philip's School of Nursing, which was a division of the Medical College of Virginia at Richmond. And of course, St. Philip's was the, was the school for all the African-American nurses, segregated. You know, this is Virginia in the 1940s. So she gets her commission in the Army. So I knew she knew about the military. And I told her about this naval officer who had come to Elizabeth City State. I said, I'd love to go. She said, OK, I'll take you up. OK, let's set up the appointment. And so one Saturday morning, uh, this is during my senior year of college, go up to Norfolk, Virginia, and uh, the St. Helena Annex, you know, which is right across the Elizabeth River for the Norfolk Naval Shipyard. Mm -hmm. It was a Saturday morning. We got there at 8 o'clock in the morning. It was kind of gray and cold that day. I'll never forget. And I walked in, and there was a young petty officer at the desk, and I introduced him. I was here to, you know, to... Uh, Apply for the Navy uh, Rock Program, the the old Navy Rock Program, Reserve Officer Candidate Program, and I said from Elizabeth City State. I said okay, so they took me into a room. I sat there, one of those big classrooms, all by myself. And my aunt, by the way, she stayed out in her car. My aunt always bought a brand new Pontiac every year, and uh, she said, "I'm okay." So my aunt just got her pedal and went to sleep on her back seat of her car. I said, "When you finish up, I'll be here in the car waiting for you." And so I go in. And I sit there, and then a lieutenant came in and said that um, we got to give you a test here, and uh, we have a clock. The test is time. I think it was the you know the the uh, OQT officer qualification test. I think it was a time about forty five minutes or whatever. And it's, so he came in and gave me the test. You know the bubble sheets, you know the pencils and everything. Right. Mm -hmm. And I sat there, and he said, "Okay, when I walk out the door, close the door. You start taking the test." And then when the uh, your time is up, we'll be able to take it from you. And then they say, good morning, anything. I just sat there. So I took the test. I looked at it. I said, wow, I think I, oh, okay. I think I've got this. So I took the test. And then right at about 45, I heard the, uh, I heard the, you know, the alarm ringing out in the oh, hallway. Mm -hmm. And they came in and took the test from me. And then they walked away. And I sat there for probably about a half hour wondering what was, you know, going on. I just sat there in this big, lonely, drop uh, classroom. And then they came back about a half hour and they said, we're not sure of the score you made on the test. So we'll give you another version. We'll give you another test. I said, okay. And not really not what was happening. So they gave me another version of the test. The next version I took was easier than the first version to me. So, so you know, I think in the end, though, the, the story goes, you didn't join the Navy, you joined the Army. Isn't yeah, that that's right? gonna, well, so, anyhow, so what was the circumstances? Okay, when to you, make the story short, yeah. they came back and said, oh my God, you passed the test. So I went through the medical uh, situation and all, and they, I, I'm nearsighted. I wear glasses, glasses, glasses. I was seeing 2070 without my glasses, and I need to see 2050. Mm -hmm. And the treatment that, they, that I was getting, it was, it was really strange, Commander. Well, I, you know, I won't get so it. Was that, as a result of that treatment, was that why you decided well, to join yeah, the I Army? I was there, and yeah, what happened? And then a, a young corpsman, i never forget that day, came to me, and I didn't realize what was happening. He said to me, and he was a white corpsman, too. He said, 
look, uh, your name Roosevelt. Say, look, don't you like these people treat you the way they treated you? And I didn't realize I was being treated poorly. And he said, so, look. So you didn't join the Navy, you no, joined the said, Army. He said, he said, look, you, uh, you know, you can ask for a waiver on your exit interview. So I go to take the exit interview, and that was, that was the same commander who had come down to Elizabeth City State University. You know what he told me? I walked in. He said, uh, <clears throat> Mr. Wright, Wright, you, you don't qualify. You got bad eyes. And then I said, well, sir, can I apply for a waiver? Oh, he read me the riot act. I mean, he literally threw me out of the office that Saturday morning. So I went back out to the car. I was, oh, I was so disheartened. I mean, I was just almost in tears. And I got there and my aunt was sleeping and I knocked on the door and she opened it up and she had a big smile on her face. And you know what my aunt told me that day? She said, they didn't treat you right, did they? I said, I was, what do you mean? They didn't treat you nice, did they? And I said, I, I don't know. She said, look, don't worry about it. She said, I really purposely wanted you to come up to go through the testing and this process to get you ready for life to see what you're faced with. So anyway, I go back to Elizabeth City State. I graduate on the 24th of May. And then I had made connections with North Carolina Central University at Durham. They had an excellent master's program, one of the first African-American colleges in the United States have a master's degree in media, educational media and audiovisual, along with Virginia State, Dr. Ridley's campus. And uh, Dr. James Parker, and Dr. Norm Johnson, I had met them while I was doing my student teaching a little bit earlier. And I didn't get into that part of the story. But I got a full graduate fellowship to North Carolina Central University at Durham. So I graduated on the 24th of May, June 7th. I'm doing my master's degree two weeks later. Okay. And then from there? Okay, I'm at North Central, which was a fantastic year doing my master's degree. By the way, I was working in radio broadcasting too. I was uh, also working with a, I used to MC shit night uh, shows at a nightclub called the Stallion Club. And that, that year I worked with all great groups like Otis Redding, James Brown, Joe Simon, Millie wow. Jackson. So you're, so oh. you're working in, in an area that you, you were yeah. introduced to by your dad and have come to yeah. love. And it was going great. So here comes, I'm finishing up in 19, I took summer school 1965, and I'm, I'm trying to get my thesis done. My 2S classification, by the way, Vietnam is on the table right now, all right? The okay. man is on the table. We're going to hear briefly about Vietnam because we're, we're. I didn't go to. Here comes the army side, all right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, it begins by military. All right. So I'm finishing up. October 15th is really the day in which uh, your, if you have student deferments or whatever, it will, it expires. So my student deferment, which ended on October 15th, expired. I came back home. I was doing student teach. I, mean, I was doing substitute teaching also working in radio broadcasting and all, I'm trying to find my way and getting my thesis finished up. All of a sudden, roughly about the middle of October of 1965, I get a letter from the draft board, which was basically a questionnaire, which basically said, what are you doing there? Because technically, this is the first time I was no longer in school. I mean, not as a full-time student. So make this long story short, I got drafted in the United States Army. Oh, so you got, so that's how you, so how long did you stay in the army? Well, what happened, uh, never forget the day I went to the, by the way, I went to the MEP Center in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina first, went through the whole process there. 
And, you know, when I went through the Navy officer physical, when I was trying to get into the ROC program and received really not so nice treatment that day, uh, the Army treatment in, in Raleigh, the MEP Center, this is, man, the place was packed full of guys. I mean, we had, I got on a bus in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, the courthouse, and then all the way going to Raleigh, North Carolina, we're picking up more and more guys. And that day I was going through the whole, you know, medical thing. And, uh, you know, you walk in a room, you know, the, in, you know, the audio chamber, here's the audio test. You walk in a room and there's a young uh, first lieutenant, Army or Navy, you know, Army physician right out of medical school. He does this. And I said, yes, sir. I said, did you hear that? I said, yes. Good. You checked off. You can hear. <laughs> this kind of thing was happening. So then after going through the whole day, nobody really, you know, I had, I had a medical jacket. You know, your jacket you got, it's got no, nothing's in it, you know. But then by that time, it was loaded with all kind of stuff where people had checked off. So here was the last part. I was sitting out in the atrium. All these guys sitting around. It's getting towards the afternoon. And I said, oh, my God, nobody's really checked me out, but I got a whole file. He said, I qualified everything. So then I saw the Sergeant Major, E9. I walked into him and said, Sergeant Major, sir, don't you dare call me sir. I work for a living. I'm a, I'm a Sergeant Major. I said, Sergeant Major, my name is Roosevelt Wright, Jr., I'm from Elizabeth City. I just I graduated from Elizabeth City State University, finished up my master's degree at North Carolina Central. It's not that I don't want to serve my country, sir, but I tried to get in the U.S. Navy. I tried to get in the Navy and into the officer program, but they said I was nearsighted, and that gave me a non-select. And nobody's checked me out here. He said, hold it, son. What's your name? I said, right, have a seat. Say, everybody will see a doctor to see if you are physically fit for service in the United States military. So did you get into the army to serve and end up in Vietnam or not? No, you no, did. they go to NAM, but I end up in the army. Here's the story that day. All right, you go down this long passageway and there are doors on the left, doors on the right, you know, doctors, you know. Now we built enough for Vietnam, a lot of, a lot of the place was packed. This map sort of was loaded with, with you know, candidates. So finally I get to a door, so if you get to a door that's, uh, that's, that's closed, knock on the door. So I got to this door, knocked on the door, and I heard somebody say, enter. So I go in. There is a first lieutenant Air Force doctor, like he just got out of medical school. He had medical jackets piled up on his desk. I mean, like everything. And he's steady writing. So he holds his hand out, and I give him my, my, my medical, you know, file that I was carrying. And I said, lieutenant, lieutenant, sir, lieutenant. And he stops and he said, yes, son. Or what's, I said, sir, I, I'm, I, you know, I got my undergrad degree from Elizabeth City State, master's North Carolina Central, and I tried to get in the Navy when I was a senior in college at Elizabeth City State University with the Navy. And I got a non-select because they said I was nearsighted. Sir, nobody's even checked my eyes or anything out into my physical here, here at the you know, military interest processing station. And he stopped and he had a kind of a smile on his face. And he said, nobody's checked your eyes. He said, then he started saying, I won't give all the language on me. You know, military. Like, oh, son of a guy. My God, we just pushing guys through. Right, I'm sorry nobody's checked you. And he said, let's, let's get that straight right now. Let's give you an eye exam. So he got up and went over to his file cabinet, looking for you know, the eye chart that we use for, you know, checking your eye, eye uh, your eyesight. And he couldn't find it. Then he said, oh, right, I got somebody. I can't find my eye chart. He said, hold it. 
but I'm qualified to give you the secondary military eye test. So did you take that test and they yes. put you in the army and so what you, said, left, you left and you went? Yes. Yes. Tell us about leaving because you know we're running out of time. Okay, we have a lot more to cover. But so this, let's, let's, let's cover you. But there's a piece of this you gotta hear though. All so right. I'm there and he looks at me and he said, "I'm qualified though to give you the secondary military eye test, but I need your permission. Do I have your permission?" I said, "Yes, Lieutenant. You have my permission." He said, "Okay, go over and turn the light out." He turned the light out, and you know the military a uh, gooseneck uh, desk lamp. We can twist the head. He right. twist the head, shine the light up on the wall. It's okay, right? Let's get this solved once and for all. It says six paces back from my desk. I go six paces back from his desk. He said, which eye did my dear colleagues in the United States Navy say was your bad eye? I said, sir, my both, I'm 20, well, cover up your left eye. So I covered up my left eye like this. I'm standing there. And he said, okay, right. I have one question to ask you. I said, yes, Lieutenant. He said, okay. Can you see this wall? I said, yes, Lieutenant, I can see it. Okay, everybody, you know that stamp that comes down on top? To this very day, to this is what, the 23rd of January, 2021? This was like 1965, Raleigh, North Carolina. I can still hear that stamp today. And he took that military government ballpark pen, said, squill, and said, congratulations, Mr. Wright. You're qualified. You're, you're now in the Army. So, so I you're got, in the army as an officer. No, 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 not yet. No, no, not yet. No, no, okay. no. Okay. I'm a private E1. I go in the army on the 19th of January, 1966. The country's building up for our excursion to Vietnam. Well, I go through the reception center. We get on the train from Raleigh, North Carolina. Go down to Charleston, South Carolina. No, Columbia, South Carolina. Get off the train about one o'clock in the morning, Columbia, South Carolina at the train station. There were, I mean, hundreds of guys all out there. From and where Ohio. did you get orders to? Well, we were at the reception center, you know, for four or five days, get your uniforms, your hair cut, all that good stuff. Now, Fort Jackson was overtaxed. They had too many guys there. So finally we got, the guys came up to him and said, okay, we got to split you guys up. We're going to send half you guys to Fort Gordon, Georgia, and some of the others going to go to some other forts. And I was in the group that went to Fort Gordon, Georgia. So is that where you went for boot camp? That was boot camp. I was boot Bravo camp. And how long was boot camp back then? How uh, long like was three camp? months. Three months. Yeah. Okay, so you did three February. months of boot camp. You graduated, and where did you get? Where was your first okay. orders? A colonel saved me. A colonel saved me. Okay. Uh, and I must say this: when I was going through basic, I became the most outstanding trainee in my basic training company. But guess what? They took it away from me. And they said I had entered the army fraudulently. I said, how can uh -oh. I enter the army fraudulently when I was drafted? <laughs> and they got quiet in the room. The young second lieutenant who was a CEO, he didn't like me. I, I knew it. Uh, it was that kind of thing I went through. You know this story. Well, anyhow, there was a supply corps sergeant at the, uh, in, the, in the basic training uh, company there. He was from Texas. He was an African-American sergeant, and he wanted to go to college. He used to come to me every day and say, Private Wright, tell me about college, man. So I'm, from a, I'm from a small town in Texas. In fact, my hometown was what they call a sundown town. 
where if you caught African-American after stuck, he said, man, I got out of that town and the only thing I could get, I joined the army. But he said, boy, I wish I could go to college. He said, tell me about college, college. What do you do? What about fraternity, sorority, the classes? I want to know about going to the games. And every day, so one day he came to me and said, right, look, man, you're doing great here as your trainee, man. He said, the CO doesn't like you, man, because you're, you're black. <laughs> you're doing great. You got a master's degree and all that stuff he wore. Well, anyhow, he said, look, I put your name in for guard duty. I said, oh, my. He said, no, 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 no. He said, look, if you make... Uh, they're going to have a guard mount that is four guys from each of the four platoons. And the sharpest guy on the guard mount will not have to pull guard duty, but you'll have the opportunity to meet the brigade commander and be his orderly. And say, so I know you can do this and that you'll be selected. So That's you, what happened. You got the job and then what so happened I got after the job. that? So I go over to the brigade commander at Fort Good, went across parade field. It was in March of 1966. I never forget the day because I tell you, I was all dressed in my, you know, fatigues and everything. You know, I had the poncho, had rained all night, all that red clay Georgia muds on the wall, on the floor. Just as I'm getting ready to go into brigade headquarters, commander, a big deuce and a half truck comes by and throws mud all over me. It was the only time in my life that I nearly came completely unglued. I mean, emotionally. And I said, oh God, please, somebody help me here. And that was a, the command sergeant major was on the porch and he yelled over me. He said, are you private right from Bravo 15-1? I said, yes, sir. He said, look, come over here. He said, look me in the face. I looked him in the face. He said, look, son, this is the United States Army, the infantry. It doesn't rain in the Army, only on it. So that regulation poncho, you got probably caught all that mud. Go over and uh, clean yourself up. The colonel's waiting for you. So I went into the colonel's office. The colonel was practicing his golf swing. All right. And he looks at me and he says, I write, I'm pri say, private right, report, sir, for duty. He said, oh, right, I, we're not going to go out a day. It rained last night, mud and everything, cold. And I just got orders to Vietnam. And he was practicing his golf swing. He said, son, have a seat. He said, son, how far did you get in school? I said, sir, I have my, uh, math, I have my baccalaureate degree in industrial arts technology from Elizabeth City State have master's arts degree in educational media business from North Carolina Central University. And I've you know, worked in electronics and all, that's my background. And he stopped his golf swing. And then he went over to his desk and he lit up a cigar and sat down. And I was sitting there and I was kind of unconscious, what do I do? And I just said, he said, no, right. Let me, just, said, let me just look at you, son, for a moment. And he looked at me and he said, son of a SOB, that's what he said. We, we have done it again. Here's a young man with a baccalaureate degree, a master's degree, probably got excellent scores, and we got him as a private E1 in the United States Army. And boom, he said, right, I got to do something. Make sure you are okay. So he said, call the chief staff officer, and they gave me this long interview, blah, blah. We talked and everything. He gave me a pass to go and enjoy the base for the rest of the day. But when I graduated from uh, basic training, uh, I was among six, seven of us did not have any orders at all. And I said, oh God, the other half my guys in my unit went to Fort uh, Pope, Louisiana for advanced infantry training. The other half of the group went to Fort Seal, Oklahoma for artillery. And there were seven of us with no orders. And the other guys were in the other platoons. I was a platoon guy for the fourth platoon. And so we were there talking among us. I was the only African-American among us. And then what group. happened to you? What, what came My orders came down about four or five days later. 
-hmm. And I walked, and I said, the, the company clerk said, right, your orders have come in. I said, well, uh, hey, uh, do you have to no, the CEO's got your orders. So I walked in, and I said, private right report, sir, for my orders. Young second lieutenant, he looks at me, and he said, right, who do you know? I said, sir, I don't know anybody. Nobody, sir. And I said, my God, I, you know, y'all have been, I mean, I said, I don't know anybody. He said, yeah, you got to know somebody. These, you got two sets of orders here. And he said, one set of orders are seal orders. And the other orders I checked out, you got orders that report to signal OCS uh, here at uh, Fort Gordon. And your other set of orders is you got to report to Fort Bliss, Texas. And so I had to, he said, what you gonna do? I said, sir, I don't know, sir, can I have my orders? And I got him and walked out. And then I got on the phone and called my aunt in Elizabeth City, my aunt Edna, who was an army officer. Mm -hmm. said, she said, uh, and my nickname, by the way, was Sonny. That's the nickname my mother gave me. Mm -hmm. She said, okay. Sonny, come on home. And I got on the bus, went home and I got there. My aunt said, do you really wanna be in the army? He said, if you become, you know, the OCS, second lieutenant, you're going straight to Vietnam. What about these other set of orders? The other orders to a highly advanced engineering electronics course, Fort Bliss, Texas, uh, to be trained to know everything about the Hawk missile system. So which one did you take and what happened next? I took the orders to Fort Bliss. We have lots of story more to cover. I, I know. I took the orders to Fort Bliss, Texas. And okay, I got, so how long were you there? And March, April, May, June, March, April, May, June, July, August, September. And being a draft, he only had a two-year commitment. So I went to this electronics course. And by the way, when I got off the plane, I saw one of the greatest sights ever seen in my life because El Paso, Texas, Texas Western, the basketball team there, had just won the national championship. NCAA chapter with all African-American players. And the so you basically went to that school. I went to that school. Your, your contract was up with the Army? And no, after you... I went to that school, uh, it was gorgeous. It was electronics, you know, my undergrad. So you stayed grade. in the Army? Yes. Yeah, so anyhow, I finished up. To, by the way, I graduated number one in the class. and didn't even know it until I got, I got orders to Germany. So uh -huh. I leave uh, El Paso, Texas. I go to the 32nd double ADC, Air Defense Command, Europe, and I was- uh, And how long were you there? I was there until December of 1967. So basically I was there- so You did your tour in Germany and you came back to the United States yes. and what did you do? What orders did you get back here in the United States? Okay, I get back, okay, I've uh, got an early out. In fact, I spent my time uh, as an, I made spec five real quick, by the way. Also mm -hmm. I worked a TDY dude with the Army Air Force motion picture uh, television service at AFN in Frankfurt. So we're kind of going back to your roots there a little yeah, bit. So right? everything was working. I was so having you, a call. You, you were stationed in Germany and in then Germany. you came back to the States. And did you say you had an early out in the army? Yeah. Okay. So I got, I went in on the 19th of January, 1966, December 27th, 1967. I got an early out right after Christmas and flew back to the United States. And I was discharged at Fort Hamilton, and you're discharged from the army, so military is behind you. So what was next for Captain? Okay, Martin I come back point? home to Elizabeth City, North Carolina. I'm saying, oh my God, what am I gonna do? I'm, you know, so once I'm home for about maybe two weeks, and my mother wakes me up one morning, and she says, "Sonny," I said, "Yes, Mom, you got a telephone call." I said, "Who is it?" I said, "No, no, you got a telephone call." So I went and picked the phone up, and on the telephone was Dr. Walter N. Ridley, the president 
of the Elizabeth City State University. And he's saying to me, young man, what are you doing? I said, Dr. Ridley, he said, why haven't you come out to see me? I heard you were back. Cause I had gone out to a couple of basketball games, you know, on campus and all. Mm -hmm. And he said, I said, well, Dr. Ridley, I really, I, you know, I really told I was really felt embarrassed because I had gotten drafted in the army. And he said, embarrassed, you have went and served your country and we got you back here alive. And he said, you be in my office within the next hour and a half. Your mother is fixing you a beautiful breakfast, she just told me, and you come out and see me. So I had took had breakfast when got showered up and, you know, you know, you would know if we dress, you know, put the suit and tie on. And I go out to Elizabeth City State University, go into the president's office, and Dr. Ridley looks at me and he says, Roosevelt, I have something I want you to do. And I want you to do it like right now. I said, what? I have a piece of paper on my desk that I want your signature on it like right now. Uh, you're going to be joining the faculty of Elizabeth City State University. And also, I need you to get back to doing what you were doing as a student. We need uh, your audiovisual uh, center developmental leadership support here. And so I was at Elizabeth City State. I was back home, college professor. So, so you're back home at Elizabeth State. And I know at some point you ended up at Syracuse University where you spent a long time. So briefly summarize okay. Let the, me the story real between quick. there and when you get to Syracuse because okay. you spend a so lot of time. We want to talk about the experience at Syracuse. Okay. So I'm at Elizabeth City State University. I go in uh, January of 1968, that horrible year when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. got killed, assassinated, brought tears to my eyes because Dr. King was one of my mentors. His sister-in-law, Coretta Scott King's sister, Dr. Edith Scott Bagley, was a faculty member at Elizabeth City State University and a member of my church, Mount Lebanon AME Zion Church. So I'm there during that horrible time, 1968, and then Dr. Ridley leaves the campus and a new president comes in by the name of Dr. Marion Thorpe, who's a good friend who I'd met when I was at North Carolina Central. So I spent basically three semesters. That was uh, 1968 and in 68, 69 at Elizabeth City State. One day I get a phone call. Here comes another phone call from a Dr. M. Milford Codwell, who was a great mentor of mine. And when I was a freshman at Elizabeth City State, he had just finished up his PhD at the Ohio State University. He came down as director of the Audio Visual Center. He also was an Air Force Lieutenant Colonel too. And he came down, he was an incredible role model. Well, I got a phone call, he says, Roosevelt, why are you back home? <laughs> you can always go back home. So you gotta leave home. And he was, uh, he was the Dean at Delaware State University, Dover, Delaware, and said, Roosevelt, I want you to come, I need a director of our educational media radio TV center here at Delaware State. I said, okay. So I go up, get the job at Delaware State University, faculty there. Also on my way to Delaware State, I got another phone call from Virginia State University at Petersburg. Dr. Harry Johnson said they had a one year mid so How many program. universities called you or you may have worked up before you finally got to Syracuse? Okay, it's, it's, I'm just, I'm, the Syracuse story is coming at you. All these okay. pieces, All right. I got to Syracuse. So while I'm, I'm taking the new position at Delaware State, I'm also a graduate student at Virginia State University at Petersburg in their mid-careers program in educational media. It was a one year program. The summer of 1969, we on campus taking all the coursework when they, we first landed on the moon that, that summer. All righty, 
Then we go, everybody in the Institute, though, had to be a professional in a leadership role in the field of audiovisual communication, educational leadership, blah, 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 you know, principals and all that kind of level. So I had to do a research study, and my research study was really the development of the audiovisual program at Delaware State University, a projection prospectus, you know, where the program's going to go. And Dr. Johnson, man, Roosevelt, you're taking over a brand new program. Here's a chance for you to sit down, write your program up. So I go to Delaware State, and I get there in August of uh, 1968. No, 69. Yeah. Well, anyhow, I go to Delaware State. I'm at Virginia State. The year goes by the spring of 1970. I'm at Delaware State. I get a phone call from Dr. Harry Johnson at Virginia State. Roosevelt. Look, everybody has got to get a, 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 a person, a consultant to write, to visit you, an on-site visitation, and to sign off on your research study. I receive a gift from God, probably the top person in the field of audiovisual education and instructional technology, Dr. Donald P. Ely, head of the whole program at Syracuse University, was my person who came down to Delaware State. I could not believe it. For three days, we were there. And after having spent a great year at Delaware State University, we were there at the Holiday Inn. This is the spring of 1970. And Dr. Ely looked at me and said, Roosevelt, I really hate to take you away from here, but you got to go back to school and get your doctoral degree in this field. You are the kind of people we're looking for. And I said, Dr. Ely, I don't have any money or anything. I'm on a wing and a prayer. I said, no, money's no problem. I said, I'm going to send you all the, all the uh, you know, the introduction, you know, all your application materials and everything now. So I got everything in the mail a few weeks later, filled out everything. And you applied and you got accepted. You know, and then, then I, got, I got the letter back from Syracuse said, uh, congratulations, Syracuse. you are, uh, uh, you know, we have been selected to be, uh, you know, full doctoral fellow in instructional technology at Syracuse University. So you spent how many years in Syracuse? Okay, so I go up to Syracuse. I get to Syracuse uh, September of 19, August 1970. And I get on campus, full doctoral student. Also, by the way, I had another parallel career I haven't even talked, which is the world of radio. I worked a lot of radio stations. And also, I was a radio broadcaster. I had my first class FCC radio engineering license. So I got to Syracuse, started working radio, full-time graduate student at Syracuse University, and then spent two years getting all my coursework, everything done, trying to get my dissertation finished up. Phone call comes up from North Carolina Central University, Durham, said, Roosevelt, you got to come back home. So North Carolina Central lost me a faculty position. I go back to North Carolina Central, still had my dissertation to get done. Had a great year in North Carolina Central. The weather was great. Have fun. But I said, I got to get out of here. So after a year at North Carolina Central, and I worked, by the way, in radio stations at WDNC mm -hmm. Durham, which was a flagship station of Duke University. So is that, did you leave from there and go back to Syracuse so, and staff? So I leave, no, no, not, not, not just yet. I spent the year at Raleigh Durham Chapel. We, we, we got a lot more to cover. Okay, so. well, I'm getting there. And then I leave um, North Carolina Central University in Durham. And I'm offering, in fact, really what happened, I got a phone call from a company in New Jersey who said they were buying radio stations. And I was named the vice president and general manager of a radio station in the capital of New Jersey, Trenton, New Jersey. Oh, it was one of the craziest moves I've made in my life. But I made the move because I was thinking about getting back north because I still was trying to finish up my doctoral dissertation, all right? 
So I spent a year in Trenton, great time. Oh, it's a fascinating time, but that's a book in itself. So right, and, and we ran out of time. And so then let's, I, let's leave Trenton. I leave Trenton one day to go up to New York City to the advertising, to uh, close a couple of advertising contracts. And I said, while I'm there, let me go and just, I'm gonna go make a tour of NBC. And I go to NBC, uh, 30 Rockefeller Plaza, and I meet the president of the NBC radio network. <clears throat> His name was Mr. Russell Tonabin. We were talking, and in the meantime, come to find out he was a Syracuse alum. He had gotten his master's from Syracuse. And he said, Roosevelt, uh, have you ever thought of working for NBC? I said, I, boy, I never did my wallet. So well, look, I have a position available in Chicago, Washington. Make a selection. And uh, so I went and worked for NBC Radio. I go to Washington, D.C. While at Washington, I'm also on faculty at Howard University, the university of our new oh, vice president of the United States. Okay. Okay. So while I'm at so Howard. So was it at that point you came in okay, contact the with phone the Navy? The phone rings, all right? Right. The phone rings from Syracuse. Syracuse at the time had just spent a whole lot of more money to expand the whole SI Newhouse School of Public Communications, the radio TV area. On the phone is my doctoral advisor, Dr. Larry Myers, my greatest mentor, Dr. Donald P. Ely, and the dean of the Newhouse School at that time, Dean Henry Hank Schulte. The phone, call, phone conversation goes like this. Roosevelt, we have just expanded the Newhouse School. We have just added new faculty lines, and your name is number one on the search committee's list for one of our new faculty positions. Um, I said, no, I said, my God, I didn't apply. I said, no, we applied for you. So when can you get up until we close the deal? So I leave Washington, D.C., come back to Syracuse, and this is September of 19, uh, this is 1975-ish in my life. So I joined the faculty and uh, the Newhouse School and started having fun. And, and the rest is radio. history. But, so, so let's, now let's here's cover, the day, I'll get to the Navy story. The Navy story. Wait, 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 wait. Let's cover, yeah. let's cover Syracuse really quick. Okay. You know you were there for about 25 years, right? About uh, 38 years. I'm 38 about. years. Yes. I can stand corrected. And I, we know you have a lot of famous students that graduated under your, from your professorship at the school. So quickly, name a couple of the few famous students now that are on national television that we know you got. Well, some of the uh, national people that people know right off the bat, like Bob Costas, I saw Bobby on the air a few minutes ago talking about the death of Hank Henry Aaron, uh, Mike Tirico, who is a major sportscaster, taught him, Sean McDonough taught him, Iron Eagle taught him, another beautiful sister who was one of the first anchors at CNN, Jeannie Moose. I think Jeannie's probably getting ready to retire. She's been there since the network was developed. And uh, oh God, Melissa Ann Twistle became the great fashion model. The People Magazine says she was one so you, of the you have, you have a lot of uh, famous people that can create. Yeah, Vanessa Williams, the first African-American. So we we, we got to transition to the Navy. We okay, now here's the Navy story. Let me do it huh? real quick. Okay, uh, 1975, 1980 comes up, all right? Mm -hmm. My mother, Ruben's great-grandmother, uh, no, his grandmother is, Miss Lily May Wright. Mom loved the Navy. I mean, she loved the Navy. She was dying of cancer oh, in God. December of 1979. And Syracuse was playing McNeese State in football in the Independence Bowl, December of 1979. Mom was dying of cancer. I called mom to talk to her on the phone like every day, every night. But this particular night, she was getting real weak and my aunt, my aunt Edna was her nurse. And 
my aunt said, your mom's to talk to you. So mom was on the phone and she was saying to me, I couldn't understand what she was saying. Then the vicar said, mom, say that again. And what she was saying in her very weak, feeble voice, being body racked with cancer, breast cancer. And mom said to me, your students, your students, Syracuse, they're doing great. She was watching the Syracuse University Magnese football game that featured great players like Art Monk and Joe Morris and all. And then before we hung up, she said, I have something else to tell you. I said, yeah, mom, what? She said, don't forget the Navy. Don't forget the Navy. I said, mom, I, I love the Navy and all the sailors, but I've already did my military time. And then uh, I said, okay, mom, I hung the phone up. That was the last time I talked to my mother. She died a few uh, weeks later, before Christmas of 1979. Let's fast forward to the summer. because you did not forget the Navy because that was- Okay, but here's what happened. Yeah. 1980, the summer of 1980, which is about five, let's see, that was December, January, February, Brown, I think it was June or July. The Air Force Thunderbirds came with a big air show at Syracuse Hancock Field here in Syracuse. And that day, I love airplanes and aviation. That's a whole nother story of growing up in Elizabeth City and Norfolk and all, and seeing all the planes, you know, landing and taking off at. Yeah, Coast my Coast. first assignment was at an air station because I too love okay. the planes. I love. Yeah, it was the air show. I parked my car that day, and that beautiful day in upstate New York, the Air Force Thunderbirds were going to fly because Hancock Field at Syracuse was open in those days. The Air Force had a big NORAD, uh, a you know, unit here. And of course, the Air Guard uh, has a big squadron here called the Boys from Syracuse. Well, yeah, there were at least about 60,000 people out there that day. And I'm walking down the flight line. And Commander Denise McCullough Crary, I'm walking down the flight line, and there are two Navy T 34 Bravos painted up in the red, white, and blue configuration. Mm -hmm. And there was a two big Winnebago, there was a Winnebago out there, like a, a command with United States Navy recruiting all over it. And there were two big 18-wheelers that had people going in to see the exhibit, I think, for Surface Navy. And the other 18-wheeler had was the exhibit for aviation. There were two Navy lieutenants, uh, aviators. That's, they were part of the OPO team, you know, recruiting uh, naval officers at that time, summer of 1980. So I saw these two Navy lieutenants. I said, oh, my God, the Navy? Where are these guys from? So I walked up and said, Lieutenants, uh, where are you guys from? Willow Grove or, or Pensacola or Norfolk or, you know, South Weymouth Naval Air Station? I said, I've never seen the Navy here. I said, no, we're, 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 here in the, we're right here in Syracuse. So you guys are here in Syracuse? So yeah, we're part of the Navy Recruiting Command. So you guys got these two T-34s? Yeah, we are two T-34s we got. We fly around and everything. So I, started, so I grew up in the Navy and the Coast Guard. I started talking about the Navy and the Coast Guard and Norfolk and taking summer cruises with the Boy Scouts of the U.S. Taconic and Vulcan, you know, all these Navy and Coast Guard stories. Then they stopped me somewhere and they said, hey, hold it, holy guy. So what do you do? What is your name? I said, my name is Roosevelt Wright. And he said, what, what do you, I said, I'm a professor at Syracuse University. I'm a professor of radio, TV, and film in the Newhouse School of Public Communications. And I grew up, you know, really around the Navy and the Coast Guard. And then they looked at me and they said, hey, hold it. Uh, you got prior military service? I said, yeah, I was in the Army, uh, missile engineering electronics with the United States Army. And I did, you know, yeah, two years active, like four years reserve, but 
I got my discharge in 1972 uh, when I was finished up my, my, my doctoral coursework at SU. I say, hold it, you're a professor at Syracuse University? Yes. Said, do you have a resume? Say, by the way, first of all, uh, how would you like to become a naval officer? Uh-huh. So we're going to take and, a break there and just remind everybody that we're talking to Captain Roosevelt Rick Wright, and this is NNOA. He serves on our national board as our historian. He's a professor formerly with Syracuse University Newhouse School of Journalism. And we're about to embark on the latter half of, half of his life talking about his Navy experience before we close the show today. So Captain Wright, so I gather the story is going to lead to where you joined the Navy some way, shape or form. Yes. Tell us how did you get involved with the Navy and especially the National Naval Officers Association? Well, we'll get to it. I'll make it quick. I know we take a lot of your time this afternoon on this is NNOA having a ball, but I love telling this story. Well, anyhow, they add, they, then they said, uh, I'm going to become a Navy. I said, hold it, guys. You two guys are Navy recruiters, right? I said, yes. Well, what is the whole story? When can when you tell when a military recruiter is lying, when his lips are moving? And I said, you guys' lips are moving. They said, no, 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 no. I said, yeah. and by the way, guys, I'm past the age of 26. I think I was like 30, 31 years old at the time. And they said, no, 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 sir, please, we are really serious. So do you have a resume you could get to us? We'd love to see your resume. And I said, I got a resume out of my car. I can walk over and, you know, get it now. And I had parked my car in the general, you know, admission area. And it was, I mean, it was a big deal. A lot of, about 60,000 people out there, like a city, planes flying, the Air Force Thunderbirds will be flying about another hour. I said, no, 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 sir, please. So they got on one of those radios and then a golf cart came up in about five minutes with two petty officers on with their summer whites on, and they had all these young ladies on the golf cart, you know, sailors, all right. They probably- so, they, Is that your resume for you, or you went no, with them and got the resume and- no, the, the Lieutenant, Lieutenant John Roberts and Lieutenant Kurt Yerdy were the two lieutenants. They were P3 pilots, by the way, uh -huh. on recruiting duty. So they said to the young petty officers, said, look, take um, uh, a Professor Wright over to his car and give him the VIP chair, bring him back to us. He's got something in his car, cause I'll call a resume that we want to see. So I, they took me on the golf cart over to my car in the parking lot. Then they gave me the, you know, the rear view mirror VIP pass to put up on your rear view mirror in the car. And it's okay, sir, just follow us. So I followed them, went through the security of the gate, went through, and then I ended up parking my car on the flight line where their cars were parked, right while the planes on static display. And I got out of the car and gave them my resume. And they looked at my resume and they looked back and said, oh my God, we can't believe we found you. And they said, uh, do, can we have your permission to you know, send your resume up the chain to our boss? So is that when you became a campus liaison yes. officer this is, this and you did that for quite some time? And yes. Tell so, us about the different crews that you went on and all the awards you got because well, uh, we still it, have a lot more time and we, we, we well, need to wrap up case, really soon. In this case, yeah. real quick, to make it real quick, um, I said, they said, could you, then I, our Captain Steve Maganka was the commanding officer of the NRD Buffalo and became eventually the area, area one recruiting commander. He became really my sea daddy. And he called me on the phone one day and said, uh, Professor, I got your resume. I got to talk to you. So we have a very special program in the Navy, and you're the person we've been looking for. Thank God my two lieutenants found you. Can I come over and take you to dinner? 
So I think it was a Friday evening coming up. And I said, they came over and knocked him at my door, uh, my office at the Newhouse School at Syracuse University. I opened the door up and there was Captain McGanka standing there. The EXO was standing there, who was a commander. His name was Mike Edwards, the education specialist. But I was Mr. Frank Smith. He died. He was another great mentor. The two lieutenants were there. There were two master chiefs there. I think one was a chief recruiter. And, the and did they threw you in on the spot? They were all day outside of my door. We, we go down and they had about three or four G cars all set there. The guys had the doors open, jumped in the front, went on the back seat with, the, with Captain McGanka. And we went over to a restaurant called Danzer's here in Syracuse on the north side. And we sat there. And then eventually Captain McGanka said, um, uh, Professor Wright, Dr. Wright, look, we have a program in the Navy that they have designed that we designed years ago to look for college professors, VIP type professors, and deans and presidents at the college who had prior military service and could get through our screening process that we could commission so that you could be our official representative on that campus to help us with recruiting or whatever we got from the inside. And I said, wow. So he had this big, um, oh God, about 50 page, you know, instruction on the program. He gave, so look, I want you to so read. you got commission? Yes, yeah, yeah, so he said, please, you got it. Give us one story about probably the most exciting experience as the camp, campus liaison officer, because I want to get to your involvement with NNOA. Okay, well, anyhow, uh, what happened, and here's the story with my mom. You remember my mother told me she was dying, don't forget the Navy. I've always, and I feel to this very day that this was a gift from my mom from heaven, because I went down to the federal building, and you know the old IBM cell electric typewriters? The yeomen were there. Two of them were sitting side by side. They gave me all the paperwork that I filled out in pencil. And then they typed up the whole packet. And after I got the packet, I started getting invitational travel orders and fly all around to see the Navy. The point I'm making is that my mother died December 1979. One year to pretty much the date my mother said, don't forget the Navy. I received a phone call from Captain McGanka, who said, Professor, Dr. Wright, all of your, 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 everything has passed. Your commissioning documents are on the desk of the Secretary of the Navy awaiting his signature. And after that, we want to get, find a time probably right at the beginning of the year, which was 1981, to get your commission. And so I was commissioned into the Navy as a Lieutenant Commander on the 7th of February, 1981. And guess who brought me into the Navy? I have no clue. Lieutenant Commander Dalton Baum, one of the Golden 13, oh. of the first African-American Naval officer. Wonderful. Was so person. you came in as a Lieutenant Commander. Lieutenant I would think Command. that in those yeah. days, that was, that was pretty good because number one, they, uh, finding African-American officers was pretty challenging. Number two, my recollection when I came in around 1978, you were seldom any senior officers. The, the highest rank was lieutenant commander and you were retiring. So if they brought you in as a lieutenant commander, that was, that was wonderful based on all your skill sets. So uh, you, you came in as a lieutenant commander and when did you find out about NNOA? How did you find okay. out about NNOA? This is February of 1981. I'm a brand new Lully Commission, Lieutenant Commander, United States Navy. And I got to work immediately, flying all over the country, riding on ships, flying on planes, everything. And you got quite a few awards. Yeah, um, but here's like the picture. Recognize, 
Now, did I, you get an award? Didn't you get an award that ended up in Jet Magazine? Yes, I picked special? up the award Tell as us a about that really quick. Yeah, I picked up the, the award as the Navy's top naval liaison officer for the whole United States Navy and went to Washington, spent seven days. You know, Roy Week that they had, you've been in recruiting, mm -hmm. and um, spent seven days in Washington, wine and dine, Navy Commendation Medal out of that. But here's the NNOA story, and I'll back yep. up before I get to We're that. We're almost out of time. Okay, let me make this real quick. All righty. Uh, it's roughly uh, June of 1982. So I've been basically what, uh, you know, like February 1981, and this is uh, what about 14 months in, in the Navy. I get a phone call from uh, Commander Mike Edwards, who was the commanding officer of NRD Buffalo, who said, hey, uh, Professor, Commander Wright. I said, yes, yes, Skipper. Uh, I want to send you and Chuck down to a convention, the NNOA convention. I just got the message here. And uh, we're going to cut orders for you and Chuck to go down. And y'all come over, you give you advance pay or whatever. Say, pick up a G car. We got some brand new. Y'all drive on down to the NNOA convention. I didn't know what NNOA. I said to the, to the to Commander Edwards, I said, yes, Skipper, I'd love to. And I said, what's NNOA? So I picked up the phone, and uh, Chuck was Lieutenant Chuck Parr, who was the only, only African-American officer at, uh, with the OPO team in Naval Recruiting District Buffalo. Uh, Chuck was a graduate of Prairie View State University, Texas, and the NROTC unit there. So I called Chuck. I said, Chuck, just got a phone call from the skipper, man. He said, uh, hey, uh, won't you guys go down to the NNOA convention? I said, what's NNOA? And Chuck started laughing on the phone. <laughs> he was laughing at me. And I said, hey, man, you're going to love it. The National Naval Officer Association is really our organization for all the brothers and sisters of the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard get together to really help each other out. And uh, we're going to go down and have fun. So I surfaced at the 1982 NNOA convention. Norfolk, so that, that was your first annual symposium, right? For our viewing audience, the NNOA feature every year an annual training symposium as part of our objective of recruiting, training, and retaining a diverse uh, service of officers in all three services. So keep telling your story. So we drive down, stop over in Washington, D.C., see some dear friends, showed up in Norfolk, Virginia that early that morning. It was a, it was a waterside hotel, that big waterside complex there in Norfolk, right on the Elizabeth River. And we checked into the hotel and I'm telling you, I never forget, I would get, put the uniform on and came down for the opening session of the National Naval Officer Association. And Admiral Lawrence Chambers, who was the second African-American graduate of the Naval Academy, was the keynote speaker kicking things off. But I'm telling you, I walked in that morning in that big ballroom and saw all of these brother and sister Navy, Marine, and Coast Guard officers. And I'm telling you, I saw that site and it was like, I said, wow. And again, my mother said, don't forget the Navy. So I well, we're glad you didn't forget the Navy. And as you said, you became affiliated with NNOA. And I know that you know you saw many annual symposium after that. In fact, I believe I met you in the Washington, DC chapter. Yes, the, you became and the, our public affairs officer yes. and helped to publish one of our first newsletters in the organization. Yes. And I left you and went to the postgraduate school, and you went, um, as far as I remember, went back on staff at Syracuse University. Yes. And we separated, and 
1982. And I did not see you again until about three, four years ago. And I guess you were told I took over as the president and you volunteered to be the historian. And of course I was elated because we needed an historian. And as our listening audience can hear, you're full of history. You have been around a very long time and you have been serving ever since then as our historian, in addition to starting this podcast. So we're kind of at the point, uh, but we can close this down, but I've got to put the in and away back into perspective. Okay, I'm put it at, in the perspective, and then I have okay. what I'm calling my rapid-fire questions for okay. you to wrap up. Okay, already. Now, here's the thing. I'm at the NNOA convention, and I'm walking around, and guess who taps me on the back? Lieutenant Commander Milt Moore, one of my great mentors. And at the time, he was a second-class radarman at Coast Guard Air Elizabeth City back in the 19, late 1950s now. And he looked at me. And he took my name, he said, Roosevelt Wright. And he was a lieutenant commander and I was a lieutenant commander. He's a seasoned Coast Guard officer. I said, yeah, I'm down from Syracuse. And he said, my God, man, you think that really worked out nice? I said, well, you helped train me. So anyhow, Lieutenant Commander uh, uh, Milt Moore introduced me to Judge Fontroy, who was the president of NNOA at that time. And I mean, I walked in, I was a rookie walking into the doors of NNOA and all these, I mean, brilliant brother and sister, Navy, Marine Corps and Coast Guard officers. But Judge Fontroy looked at me and he said, you at Syracuse University, Newhouse School, I heard someone, you're a professor there. He said, he said, Commander Wright, man, we, we, we could really use you with NNOA. I said, well, I'm brand new, I need it. He said, no, 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 we can bring you up to speed real quick. So we need help quick in our public, uh, affairs area, which became really my designator, especially in the Navy. And we need a news. I said, I can do that. You can? I said, yes. And so I basically ended up, you know, the board met me and I ended up got elected to the board of directors as the public affairs officer. And I became editor of Yes of the Mer Meridian, of course, our in and away newsletter. So it was U.S. Coast Guard again. And by the way, the Coast Guard showed up again in Captain Warren Judd, President Obama's communications chief and how he reconnected me to NNOA. So anyhow, but you know what happened in my case, I was on the board for like five years, like 1982, 83, 84, 85. And we used to meet in Washington. What was it, Captain Ed Benford? You remember he was, um, we used to meet- We had quite Navy. a few presidents during that time, but I do yeah, remember that's we worked together very with very letter making it happen. getting our first yeah. newsletter well, out, the Meridian. And well, we publish it, and we're still publishing it now, until now. We've gone pretty much digital. Yeah, I got, I, I'm doing publish. all our history for the 50th anniversary. Here's a copy of a Meridian of the Past. Here's another one here. <laughs> and uh, here's a kind that I designed that I had did back, uh, boom, 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 you know, in those Right, movies. in fact, we, we, we were going to feature that one. They show that last one again. We want to oh, feature well, you know, always, not like reputation. So, so anyway, so anyway, we want to... I know, I know I'm probably jumping over you, but I want to get this point up. It's that how the Navy really found me was through the NNOA newsletter. I think I published like three or 4,000. And with your help and all the chapters, y'all got it all circulated around the whole Navy. I got a phone call here again at Syracuse in roughly 1985 from Chenfo. I think it was Admiral Garrow was Chenfo at the Pentagon. And he and his folk on the phone said, um, Commander Wright, we have been, we heard about you at Syracuse 
and we've been seeing your newsletter, your publications. He said, you know about the Navy Great Lakes cruise, don't you? I said, yes, I've seen the ships that have come up here in the summertime. We need help big time with someone to become our leader, public affairs officer, to ride the ship and really get us going with the Great Lakes cruise. And we want to bring you aboard. So I started active duty every summer as um, the public affairs officer, the Navy Great Lakes cruise, kicking off in 1985. So that was pretty much busy with that up until the 1996 era. And, and of course, you got promoted during that time? Yes. And, and got was pinned on by some very famous... You no, know, yeah, I, I got promoted to commander in 1986. And I was the public, I was running the public affairs operation. Wasn't there somebody very special that came yes. to your promotion? My mother was working again. Okay. I got sworn into the Navy by a Golden 13 member, Lieutenant Commander Dalton Baum. And in Chicago, Illinois, uh, we had the USS Glover tied up at the Navy Pier. Mr. Bob Johnson, who was the editor of Jet Magazine, Morehouse grad, also a graduate of Syracuse University in the School of Journalism here, we were very close and we set up a big party on board the USS Glover. We had the finest people in Chicago on a big reception. And I had been selected, I was commander select. And then the skipper of the ship said, Roosevelt, I got orders that we need to frock you in front of all these wonderful people here in Chicago. And um, that's what I got. You got promoted to commander. Commander. And the person. And when, at what point, how long after that did you get promoted to captain? But the point I'm going to make on the commander thing, on board the USS Glover, and there's a photograph, Rubens got it, y'all probably already got it, of Lieutenant Commander Jesse Arbor. Golden 13, one of the first African-American naval officers, frocked me to command along with Commander Doug okay. McCullough. And, and, and we do have that photo. Okay. So, so then All I- right. so, so you frocked, you, you got promoted to commander and then got promoted to captain. Yes. What we're uh, celebrating 19, now. 1992, 1993, so I, okay. I got promoted to captain. And, and then you rejoined the board uh, four years ago approximately as yeah, our historian yeah. and on behalf of the board I want to say how much we appreciated you and appreciate all that you have done all these years both in your personal life and both in the military life as a naval officer so we're at the point now Captain Wright where we kind of have to wrap things up oh, and I want to do what I'm stealing this from another colleague with a different show I'm going to do what we call rapid fire questions okay i'm going to ask you a couple of, i'm going to ask you a few questions and real quick we just wanted okay. you to give you maybe a one-liner answer okay okay so your favorite book favorite book the bible the bible the most famous student that you know on national tv today still today i got so many and if i just name give me one, one one that you have a name before i think it's the one i'll haul again mike Tarico. Your favorite Jamaican food? Because I heard oh, you love Jamaican curry, food. Oh, curry, curry, chicken, curry, goat. Oh, what's that plantain? That uh... right, okay, one food. What's the your you've served on many organizations, many boards. What's probably your most favorite organization that you have served on thus far? Favorite organization is uh, the National Naval Officer Association and, of course, the Omega Sci-Fi Fraternity. Oh, I, I didn't think you'd leave that out. And the most favorite place you have traveled in the Navy? Most favorite place that I've traveled in the United States Navy has got to be all of my trips to the West Coast. Okay, oh, so everybody, we've been talking to Captain Roosevelt Wright. He's the host of this show, This is In and Away. 
And I know we've gone a long time, Captain Wright, but I cannot close out without asking you what advice, if, if you were asked by a junior officer, and junior officers are those that are lieutenants and below, having served in the military, started in the army, ended up in the Navy, being a professor, famous, uh, just with the spirit and the knowledge and the history that you have, what would you say to young, a young lieutenant if they came up and say, what's your, the number one advice you have for them or school of thought, you want to close with that? Key thing, put God first in all of your endeavors. Don't forget the incredible thing of teamwork and loving people. There's a purpose for everything. Don't forget perseverance. Don't forget to project the personality and thought of your abilities. And also, everybody's got liabilities, but you also have assets. Discover your assets and let those assets amplify and turn those liabilities into positive assets. And keep your eye on the prize. And uh, just keep on keeping on and everything will be all right. All right. And with that, I want to say a thank you, number one, for letting me sit in your seat today and talk to you. It's been really a pleasure and an honor. I've known you since I was a lieutenant. And the same way I met you with that enthusiasm, that fabulous personality is the same Captain Roosevelt right today. And I, I just cannot begin to thank you for all the mentorship you provided me. My first tour as a public affairs officer uh, when I met you, I was coming off that tour in D.C., and you taught me a whole lot in the public relations field. And I've done a little bit of radio in my college years, but certainly the interest, any interest, you know, I always think about you and all the skill sets that you have tried to impart with all of us, especially me, because we do talk all the time. And I want to thank you for your leadership as a senior officer. So again, this has been, this is N in a way. I am Commander Denise McCalla-Curry. We want to thank you for watching. Coming up in a week, he has a young uh, aviator by the name of Lieutenant Gilchrist, I think, that we're going to have coming yes. up next week. Yes, he's coming for a couple of weeks, yes. We thank you for tuning in. We thank you for watching. Please spread the word about the National Naval Officers Association. Membership is open to all officers in the United States Navy. United States Coast Guard and the United States Marine Corps and any other service member who want to join or civilian, we welcome you as an affiliate member. We have our annual uh, symposium coming up this July and we're looking forward, you'll hear it over and over again as the, the shows go on. We will be celebrating 50 years in 2022 in Annapolis, Maryland and we're inviting the world. So if you love what you hear here and you want to know more, you can visit our website at www.nnoa.org. You can write Captain Wright, tell him how much you love hearing him today. You have any other questions you want to hear more, I'm sure he'd be glad to write back to you. You can get in touch with me. My email address is there. And we just, again, want to thank you for watching and we'll see you next week. Bravo, Zulu to you. And thank you so much, Commander Denise McCullough-Curry. Love you. Thank you. Love you. Over and out.